Uh, if you have a Bible with you or the Pew Bible, please open it up to Amos chapter 2. It's somewhere right about in the middle of the Bible. Uh, in Amos 2, we find a twofold word of God against the people of God, Judah and Israel, who are bundled up with all the surrounding nations. In Amos 1.1, we're told that his words are concerning the Israel, the nation of Israel. In 1.2, we were told that the lion's roar would shake the mountains of Carmel, a range in Israel. But then from Isaiah, or rather Amos 1.3, all the way up into Amos 2.3, Amos has been speaking message after message against the surrounding nations. And yet we know his word is for Israel, and so anticipation or should I say trepidation, has been building. If this is God's righteous judgment on all these crimes against humanity of all these nations round about, what then is he going to say to God's people, to Judah and Israel? Well, let's hear what indeed he does say in Amos chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 4 and read through the end of the chapter. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver, the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorites before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. It was also I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. And I raised up for your sons, uh, raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he who rides the horse save his life, and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. This is God's word. In the middle of this passage, Amos reminds us of the broad contours of the biblical story. Uh, Perhaps many of you remember this story. It begins with God choosing Abraham and his children to be God's special people who would be a blessing to all the nations round about. Fast forward some 400 years, and Abraham's descendants, his children, are slaves in Egypt, and they're being oppressed, and they're victims, and they cry out, and God comes, and he rescues them and brings them out, and he sustains them in the wilderness. 
and he brings them to Mount Sinai and he teaches them. He says, this is how you can live rightly as my people. If you were here last year, remember the stories of the book of Joshua, how God helped Israel come into the land and inherit it. It's off to such a promising start. And then God gives Israel judges and prophets and priests and kings to help lead them and live as God's people. If you have that broad shape in your head, when you hear Amos' words, you ask, what went so wrong? How did they get off track? What in the world happened that they're at this point of disaster when they hear from God a word of judgment? It's a real disaster. They're lumped in with all these pagan nations. They're no better than these countries we looked at last week that are committing war crimes and crimes against humanity. It's a disaster. Well, in our passage this morning, Amos lays out the recipe for disaster. The recipe for disaster. Now, I hope, kids, that my main points aren't too uh, confusing. The recipe for disaster is the things we shouldn't do. It's a recipe that if you follow, ends up with disaster. So the main points are the opposite of what we should do. But Amos begins by saying, if you want a disaster, if you want a disaster, the first step is to neglect God's word. The first step is to neglect God's word. We see this in 2, 4, and 5, this word that Amos gives to Judah. He says they've neglected God's word. Indeed, they have despised and rejected God's truth. They've rejected the law, or Torah. It's right to call Torah law because it's binding. So translating it as law makes good sense. It must be obeyed. But it's more than what we think of as laws. Uh, Kids who are in driver's ed, you get the driver's ed handbook, and it tells you all the rules, right? The laws for driving. Well, God's word is more than simply that. It is binding like laws, but it also teaches us, as we've been seeing in our Deuteronomy studies in the evening. It teaches us what God's like, what kinds of attitudes and motives we should have, how we can live as God's people. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 1 says that his delight is in the law or teaching of the Lord. And on his law or teaching, he meditates day and night. I know I make this point with some regularity, uh, and yet it's fundamental, it's essential to understand that the law is legally binding, but it's also teaching. As Psalm 119 begins, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. God's law lays out a whole way of living, a walk that we're to follow. And yet Judah has rejected God's law, his instruction, and instead their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. This seems like such a stark contrast. Uh, I'm not sure what those were, (laughs) stumbling over the syllables there. It seems like such a stark contrast that Amos is making here, that either it's God's law or following lies. And yet as a prophet, that's how Amos' rhetoric works. He cuts to the heart of the matter. Either we're going to follow God's teaching or we'll neglect it and end up following lies. It's as simple as that. What are these lies that led Judah astray? Uh, Amos is not explicit about it, but as we read through the book and reflect on it, most likely what Amos is talking about here is either false prophets who say things really aren't that bad, don't worry, God will not punish us, we're his people, or perhaps Amos is referring to the various political alliances that kings in his day were trying to make. Uh, 
Judah and Israel were continually thinking if they could only make the right alliance with Egypt, who ironically was their former slave masters, if we could only make the right treaties with Egypt, then Egypt will protect us from the other powers of the day. If you recall uh, from the beginning of this series, Amos is really addressing two audiences. His words are being spoken to Israel, the northern kingdom. He's preaching in Bethel. And yet his words are written down and read as scripture in Judah, the southern kingdom. And it's an important reminder here to Judah that they're neglecting God's word. Because in 2 Kings 17, where we read about Israel, the northern kingdom, being destroyed, it says there that the fundamental problem is that they did not turn from their evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. No, it says they rejected God's statutes and his covenant. Therefore, the Lord was angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. And so Amos's word to Judah here is a warning. He's saying, you have the same diagnosis that Israel had. Israel neglected God's word the disease ran its course into this full-blown, all the things we're going to look at in a minute, and ultimately Israel's destroyed for it. And warning, Judah, you too have been diagnosed with the same disease, neglecting God's word. Will you let it run its course? Indeed, Amos is a warning not only to Judah, but to God's people in all generations. He spells out for us the recipe for disaster, and it begins by neglecting God's word. And so we face the same basic issue as Judah. Where will we look for truth? Will we delight in God's word and meditate on it day and night? Will we turn to God's word for guidance and how rightly to live? Or will we look to other sources of truth, our feelings, experts, talk radio, blogs, what our friends are saying on Facebook, our peer group? Will we neglect God's word and instead make a hodgepodge, mixing the parts of the Bible we like with little bits of other religions and ideas that we like, mixing it all together? That's what people were doing in Amos' day, and surely it's what people are doing in our day as well. Where will we look for truth? This is where we get off track. It's the first step in a recipe for disaster, neglecting God's word. The second step in Amos' recipe for disaster is take advantage of the weak. Take advantage of the weak. We see this in, uh, in, in, in verses 6 and 7 and 8. Up to this point in the book, as we saw last week, there's seven prophecies against seven nations that each begin for three transgressions of such and such for punishment. Then each of those prophecies focuses in on one main issue, the final straw that these nations are going to be punished for. But now in Amos 2.6, Amos turns to Israel, the eighth nation in his list, his main target. He again begins, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke punishment. But he doesn't just identify one main issue. No, he lists seven transgressions in verses 6 through 8. They sell the righteous for silver. They sell the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink wine of those who who have been fined. 
Here we see Amos targeting those who seek material possessions above all else. Those who ignore the rights of others, who promote themselves above all others. I was talking to a friend recently who's at a point of job transition, and they made this comment. I just want to make lots of money. And I was a bit taken aback. It's what many of us think, but we don't say it out loud. And to hear someone put it so bluntly, I just want to make a lot of money, was a bit of a shock. Material possessions, making money, providing for your family, these are all good things. In fact, they're good gifts of God. The problem becomes when making lots of money is our main goal. And if that's your main goal, then it's easy to start taking advantage of the weak. See these victims that Amos is worried about here, the weak? He's talking about the righteous or innocent, the needy, the poor, the afflicted, young women, the weak. In Amos's day, if a farmer had a bad year, they would need to borrow in order to have seed to plant the next year. These loans could be at 20 to 30% interest. Well, if they had a good harvest the next year, they could pay off the loan and all was well. But if the crop wasn't good, they'd have to sell off some of their land to pay back the loan or some of their farm equipment. And the cycle continues as their land gets smaller and smaller, as they have less resources to farm with, until eventually a farmer would have to end up selling his children off as servants or even selling himself into servitude to meet his obligations. That's what Amos says in his day. The righteous, the innocent, they're being sold for silver. Well, we might say that's just the cost of doing business, isn't it? Sometimes good people go out of business. Sometimes farmers lose their farm. That's the way the world is. But then Amos says the needy are sold for a pair of sandals. For a price that's hardly worth bothering to collect. In fact, he says the heads of the poor are trampled into the dust of the earth. This isn't just economics, it's violent oppression. This way of doing business, Amos says, it turns aside the afflicted. Amos has criticized Judah for neglecting God's word and chasing after lies, which lead them astray in, their way, in the ways their fathers have worked, uh, walked. But now he says that by taking advantage of the weak, you're actually causing the weak to turn aside and to walk in ways they shouldn't. It shoves the weak out of the way. I wonder, friends, how different would our society look if our top priority as employees was not making as much money as we can, if our top priority as businesses is not maximizing profits, but instead our pr top priority, even in doing business, is to work in a way that protects the innocent, the needy, the poor, the afflicted. How different would our world look? Maybe this is already what you're doing at work, in which case, be encouraged. From the outside, it may mean you've lost income. Other businesses might look down on you, think that your business practice is foolish for operating in a way that protects the needy and the weak. But from God's perspective, the ultimate standard that judges all of history, it's the right way to do things. Maybe you're one of those who's been being taken advantage of by a company right now or by predatory loans. It might seem like no one's paying attention, no one cares. Well, Amos says, God pays attention. God is looking out for what's happening to the weak. God cares. 
But maybe when you go to work tomorrow, you need to spend a bit of time reflecting. Are we doing business in a way that protects the interests of the needy, the poor and afflicted? Maybe there's practices that we need to change at work to protect the weak. At first glance, the fifth transgression in Amos's list is not of the same sort. A man and his father go into the same girl. Well, first, what is Amos talking about? Clearly, it's a euphemism for sexual relations. And yet, it's probably not referring to some sort of a particularly perverse relationship. The word same is, in fact, not there in the Hebrew text. Uh, it's just the translation's attempt to make sense of what go what's going on. But I think it's much more likely that what Amos is saying here is that a man and his father are both out chasing skirts. A man and his father are both, young and old, are alike womanizers. Okay? Parallel to the previous victims, these young women are probably particularly vulnerable in society. Now, what Amos does here is really interesting. It's really interesting, even though it kind of makes us all a bit uncomfortable. For most of us, we have a natural disposition that goes one of two ways. Either you're really happy to hear Amos going after corrupt business practices, exploiting the poor and needy. After all, there's so much exploitation. But when he starts talking about sexual morality, we say, hang on a second, Amos. What goes on between two consenting adults is none of your business. Stay out of it. Or our bent is the other way. We say sexual morality is this huge problem in our day. This is what we need preaching about. But then when Amos starts talking about business practices and how we make money and oppression, well, that's starting to sound a little too much like social justice. And we say, okay, hang on a second. But Amos is doing something really important here. He's saying these two actually go together. They're all of a kind. Sleeping with a young woman might seem like harmless fun. It's just two consenting adults. But Amos's implication is that outside of the bounds of a marriage covenant, it leaves the young woman vulnerable. There are uneven power dynamics in every relationship, and so marriage is intended to ensure protection against exploitation. I mean, isn't this the big problem we've seen over the last several years with the Me Too movement? All sorts of people that said, well, we're just two consenting adults and never really thought about the fact that there's these power dynamics of one being the boss and the other being the employee that affects how that plays out. And how do we protect against that? I mean, we all agree that that sort of exploitation is wrong. Unfortunately, the solution is very simple. A marriage agreement protects both parties. It's not an antidote that everybody wants to hear, but Amos is saying here that actually, at the same time, uh, what seems like harmless fun is, is, could actually be exploiting, taking advantage. On the other hand, taking advantage of the poor, the needy, and the afflicted is no different in God's sight than sexual immorality. And so at times our targets are a little bit skewed, that we think, well, here's the big issue. Who's sleeping with who? And we overlook all sorts of economic and social injustice. And then what does Amos say? By taking advantage of the weak, God's holy name is profaned. Remember, Israel was called by God to be his special people and to live in a way that showed God's goodness to the nations round about, to be a blessing to them. In a very real sense, God's own reputation 
He's tied his reputation to how his people behave. And he's saying, Israel, when you live in this way, when you take advantage of the weak, when you engage in all these sorts of forms of sexual immorality, you cause my holy name to be profaned. You tarnish my reputation. Some of us might be really uncomfortable right now. We know that we're in a relationship that doesn't live up to the standard, or we know that we're engaged in business practices that are taking advantage of the weak. Some of us are feeling really uncomfortable, and if you're in that position, good. Uh, Hear God's word. Adjust your life accordingly. Others of us, though, might be saying, surely we don't do these things. We don't sell the needy. We don't trample the poor. We don't exploit young women. But before we get too self-righteous, we just need to reflect for a moment on the conditions of modern life. Think about the clothes that we wear. Uh, I was supposed to bring up my phone for an example, but your phone, your tablet, your computer, uh, the, the batteries that go into it. Do you know where your clothes come from? Do you know the whole supply chain that's involved in it? Every worker, were they fairly paid along the way? What about the cobalt that goes in your lithium-ion battery in your smartphone? Do you know that it wasn't mined by child miners in DR Congo? Uh, That's where most cobalt comes from. How about your retirement portfolio? Do you know every company that your retirement portfolio is invested in? And do you know that all those companies are doing right by their employees? We need to realize that a lot of things we take for granted, cheap clothing, regular phone upgrades, a retirement portfolio that grows at a healthy rate each year, are all linked to taking advantage of the weak in various ways. My point is that being born into the modern Western world, we hide the exploitation of the weak at the corners. We put it off out of sight so that we can feel good about ourselves. We're born into a globalized system that takes advantage of the weak both at home and globally in a variety of ways that we can't even control. Are we really any better than Israel in Amos's day? Of course, we do have control over other parts of our life. For example, how do we treat the migrant workers in our community that will start picking berries soon? Do we treat them fairly? Are we kind to them? Do we look out for their needs? Or are they invisible to us? Well, in 2 verse 8, we see Israel's strategy. Amos says they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Note that Amos isn't saying they're going off to pagan temples, they're not worshiping false gods. He says they're coming to worship the true God. They still go to church every week, so they're good people, right? He's saying they tithe, they give. These are good Christians, right? Surely they are not on the wrong side of things. But Amos says, as it were, that as they come to church, they sit on foreclosed and repossessed cushions. And at communion, they're getting drunk on wine paid for by fining the needy. It's as if tithing on predatory loans somehow makes it okay. But Amos says, no, far from making up for taking advantage of the weak, what you're actually doing is mixing in injustice with your worship. And it doesn't make up for what you've done that's unjust. Instead, it makes your worship also unacceptable. So the church, even more so than the world, must be a place where the weak are not taken advantage of. Okay, the recipe for disaster. Step one, neglect God's word. Step two, take advantage of the weak. Step three, Amos says, ignore God's grace. Ignore God's grace. 
See in Amos, uh, in, in verses 9 through 12 here, three forms of God's grace. First, in verse 9, God says he showed his grace in giving Israel the land promised to their ancestors. The Amorites who tried to keep Israel out of the land were as tall as cedars and strong as oaks. But God destroyed them root and fruit. He totally destroyed them top to bottom, drove them out of the land, and graciously gave that land to Israel. Second, in verse 10, Amos steps back one step further in history. He says, God showed his grace to you by rescuing you from slavery in Egypt. When the people of Israel were still hopeless slaves exploited by their masters, when Israel was weak and taken advantage of by the Egyptians, God rescued them. More than that, Amos reminds them that God redeemed them. He bought their freedom with the Passover lamb. He sustained them in the wilderness for 40 years before giving them the land of the Amorites. Third, in verse 11, Amos reminds them that once Israel was in the land, God graciously raised prophets and Nazarites to remind Israel how to live in God's ways. The prophets declared God's truth. They called God's people back to God's word, which was being neglected. The Nazarites, you may recall, were Israelites who took a special vow for a short period to live like a priest. The Nazarite was meant to be a sort of living object lesson about holy living. And part of the Nazarite's vow was to abstain from alcohol during that set period. So God shows his grace by delivering Israel from Egypt, by giving them the promised land and raising up prophets and holy men to remind Israel how to live rightly. But how does Israel respond to God's grace? By ignoring it. Although God was gracious to them when they were weak and needy and rescued them, now Israel is not acting like God, but like Egypt. Now Israel is modeling Egypt and oppressing the weak rather than modeling God's grace. Instead of receiving the leaders that God has given them by grace, they ignore God's grace. Instead of following the Nazarites' model of holy living, they try to get the Nazarites drunk with wine. And doesn't that ring true? When we feel guilty by the way someone's living rightly nearby, instead of trying to follow their example, we try to bring them down to our level. Instead of heeding God's word through the prophets, Israel tried to silence the prophets. And we too, we too ignore God's grace. Anytime that we don't show the grace God has shown us to others, God has asked, act grace, graciously towards us. But if we fail to show grace to others, we show that we have forgotten God's grace. If we've been forgiven, we should be quick to forgive. If God has given us a heavenly inheritance, we should, be, we should give generously to those in need. If God has given us his own son, then we should give ourselves, our very lives, to help others. Well, Israel has a perfect recipe for disaster. They've neglected God's word. They've taken advantage of the weak. They've ignored God's grace. And so Amos says, here it is, in verses 13 through 16. Here it is, disaster. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong will not retain his strength, nor the mighty save his life. The bowman shall not stand, the swift-footed shall not save himself, nor the horse rider save his life. He who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee naked in that day. 
What's Amos saying? He's saying, in this life, you might be strong. You might be talented, you might be wealthy, you might have all sorts of marketable, outstanding qualities in this life. And that means that you've been able to take advantage of the weak, those who aren't as strong as you, who aren't as talented, who aren't as gifted, those who don't have as many resources. And you might be able to get ahead in this life by taking advantage of the weak. But Amos says there will be a final judgment. There will be a final judgment in that day. Our natural strength, our outstanding qualities, our wealth, our gifts cannot save us from God's judgment. And as we've seen, to even live in the modern world means you're caught up in cycles that are involved in all sorts of injustice that deserve to be punished. What is our hope then in the face of disaster? We have neglected God's word. What hope do we have? Well, John says in the beginning of his gospel that God's very word became flesh and dwelled among us. It's easy easy for us to ignore God's word, to try and silence God's prophets. And so God's very word itself became flesh, became human for our sake, to lead us back to God and the way we should live. At the beginning of each of these prophecies, God warns, I will not revoke the punishment. We've seen that eight times now. I will not revoke the punishment. I won't relent. This punishment is coming. So what's our hope? Surely God will not change his word and revoke the punishment after all. He said it's going to happen. No, God's righteous judgment must be satisfied. He is a just God and he is holy. Our only hope is this, that God's incarnate word took the punishment for us. That God's very word spoken through the prophets took the punishment for us. He is the righteous one who was sold for silver. He is the one who was pressed down by God's holy justice that we might stand in God's holy place. In Jesus, we see both God's justice and his mercy. We see the just punishment for our transgressions and we see God's grace as God's word, Jesus, again rescues us from our slavery, slavery to sin and death as God's word sustains us in the wilderness and leads us to our ultimate inheritance. Friends, if you're hoping to stand in your own strength before God's final judgment, I tell you now, you're caught up in an unjust society. You're involved in injustice you don't even know about, let alone all the wrong things you do that you do know about. You have no hope of standing before God in your own strength. Friends, Christ alone is your hope to satisfy God's justice, to stand in his holy place. And if you know that truth, if you've accepted that truth, if you stand in Christ Jesus, then we have been shown grace. And so we must show grace to others. We have to make a recipe that's the exact opposite of Amos' recipe for disaster. We don't neglect God's word, we delight in it because it teaches us how to live in God's way. We don't take advantage of the weak, but those who are needy, poor, uh, afflicted, helpless women on down the list that Amos talks about, those are the ones that we look out for, that we care for. We don't mix injustice with our worship as if somehow that's going to fix it, but as a house of worship, we need to ensure that we are being just to those around us. We don't ignore God's grace, but as we are loved by God's grace, we show God's grace to others. As we've already prayed in the Lord's Prayer, 
Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those uh, who have trespassed against us. Let us show grace to others. Join me now in prayer. Gracious Lord, uh, this is a stern word from Amos, a word of judgment as Amos looks about and sees so many forms of injustice, immorality, and wrongdoing. It's probably not the text I would have picked for a baptism, except for this, that your just word drives us to your son, our only hope. And so I ask, Lord, this morning that you would drive us once again to Christ Jesus, our only hope. That as we are embraced in your grace, as you graciously rescue us from our slavery to sin and death, as you graciously rescue us from being caught up in an unjust world, we ask that we in turn would show your grace to others. That we in turn, Lord, would work to help the weak and needy. Let us be transformed by your grace. Amen.